0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I've got these bluetooth earbuds and i got them a couple months ago and i wear them way too often and i know that i wear them way too often because the insides of my ears are constantly itching and i know firsthand that this is risky business because i damaged the hearing in my right ear permanently with a pair of earbuds that i had several years ago i was living in little havana at the time and i was super broke and i was doing a freelance gig for a ghostwriter and specifically the task for this particular week is that i had to transcribe two three-hour conversations that he had had with a client. I had to listen to every word of the conversation, and I had to type it out, and I had to format it like a transcript. And just as I was settling down to do the job, one of the two earbuds burned out. I don't know if you've ever used a Skullcandy product, but it's basically the Tinker Toy CVS version of anything. I didn't have the money to get these earbuds replaced, and for all those hours in that concentrated, window of two days i listened to this conversation nearly at full volume in a single ear and for a couple days afterward i had a terrible headache and i was kind of tilting when i walked the conversation that they were having though in that uh audio it was supposed to be about social media marketing like that's that was going to be the thrust of the book but i remember they digressed for a long time into talking about jeans and when or how or if you're supposed to wash your jeans and the ghostwriter was getting really incredulous the way he was telling it he was getting mad at what were apparently the many adamant voices in his life telling him that you you never have to wash your jeans ever. It feels like such a faux pas, I'll wear my jeans for like two weeks without washing them, but when occasionally I'm in a comfortable setting with people that I know, I'll ask them how often they wash their jeans and then everyone suddenly has the body language of like a low level drug dealer and they're like looking around to see who's listening before they confess like, uh, so, you know, five days sometimes. And then I tell them, oh, I go weeks, sometimes without washing my jeans, and then they look left and they look right and they check under the plant, and they say, yeah, I sometimes go nine days. This ghostwriter though was the unluckiest man I have ever met. He had a brain tumor at the time that we met. I didn't know this for a while, and then he sprang it on me, like the night before his surgery. He had a brain tumor on his frontal lobe, which is the language center of the brain which means that basically his days as a writer were of a considerably shorter number than the days he was likely to have on Earth. Apparently though, apart from language, the frontal lobe also governs temperament, and for a while after the brain surgery he kept a blog like chronicling his how his temper was getting the best of him and then after he did that blog he started getting on the phone with me and just showing me how his temper could get the best of him like one day he bought a a blender from walmart and like he was trying to like plug it in but there was something wrong with it something not being mentioned in the instructions and he was trying and he was trying and it was not turning on and so he smashed it just raised it up over his head, ripped it out of the wall, and smashed it on the kitchen floor. And immediately once, sort of the room had stopped ringing, his blood pressure kinda subsided, and he was like, oh wait, I didn't flip the switch. And then he panicked, because it was a really expensive blender. So he collected all the pieces back into the box, and he took the box back to Walmart. At the exchange desk, they opened up the box, and they looked at all the shattered pieces, like, what the fuck happened? And the ghostwriter is, like, embarrassed, but he's still really irritable because of this brain tumor. And he's like, I don't know. I opened the box, and it was like that. Why did you sell it to me like that? One time we were on the phone, and he was in his car. He was driving, and we were on Bluetooth. And we were talking about one of the projects we were working on, and he said, okay, so make sure that you type up the, um... God damn it Fucking son of a bitch and I was like what happened because not to like put blame on him or anything Obviously, this is like just a side effect of a really traumatic surgery It's not his fault and I'd known him for a while beforehand So I knew this was like not him but his irritability was starting to irritate me and I was like What what is what is it now? Why are you angry now? And I guess he kind of caught himself and he was like just (sighs) I just drove away from the fucking drive through at Starbucks. I always get my bagel, it's the same one. I get my bagel half cream cheese, half butter. I just opened it and they fucking put butter on both fucking pieces. And then he composed himself and he sighed. And he said, fuck man, first brain cancer, now this. A few years before I met him, he went to Africa and he got bit while he was there by a deer tick and the deer tick gave him lyme disease and the lyme disease fucked up his pancreas and it fucked up his pancreas so bad that he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes the writer katie royphy wrote a book uh called the violet hour i think the title refers to like twilight like the violet sky twilight being death it's a collection of seven or eight essays i think they're all about 50 pages long and each one is a sort of biographical portrait of a famous writer confronting their own death. I I think they're all sick. Nobody dies by like freak accident. It's all writers who are like introspective people by nature. They get sick and so they see sort of their final day coming. And there's some pretty grueling portraits of their deterioration. Sigmund Freud is one of them. John Updike is another. Susan Sontag is a very compelling one. A few years after her death, um, the whole transcript of a very long Rolling Stone interview that she gave in the 1970s was published in hardcover and there's a part in the interview where she's talking about sexuality but she says that human sexuality it can be fun it can be enriching romantic it can bring people together but she says it can also be quote a theater of the demonic where like the big hang-ups the big deep conflicting issues that a person keeps sequestered to like the backmost corners of their mind sex can be like the battleground where those things come out and your demons can kind of like come out and stretch their legs. Another one of her quotes that I love, and it's actually the epigraph of the novel that I just put out on submission. It comes from her, like, uh, this is basically an essay. It's It's a book, but it's a very short paperback. It's called Regarding the Pain of Others. And in the book she's talking about, like, photographic depictions of pain, of war, of torture and atrocities. And there's a particular segment where she's talking about how you cannot totally trust photograph or a video because a photograph or a video is the product of a camera and a camera has a perspective the lens is is an eyeball just like a human beings it frames a shot but there are things existing outside the parameters of that shot things that were they included in the shot might create a different context for what you're looking at and she says at that point in the essay to photograph something is to frame it and to frame is to exclude. Sontag underwent, like, I think some pretty grisly experimental treatments for her cancer that had really like unprecedented side effects also there was like the internal drama of her of susan sontag having been like the strongest personality in everyone's life and then they were going to visit her in the hospital and seeing her enfeebled like her friends talk about how that had a huge striking influence on them and of course she was aware of her image and so in this weakest moment of her life she was also trying harder than ever to not seem weak when it comes to like deathbed portraits i way prefer leonard cohen the one the portrait that leonard cohen kind of painted of his own deathbed experience although obviously you can't trust it 100 percent when you think about like how often people lie about the shit that happens in their life like you can imagine the kinds of lies that happen when when people are talking about their death dude i was reading The most recent Joe Biden book uh, by Franklin Foer, it's called The Last Politician. And it's just, it's about his, like, administration up to, like, the halfway point. And did you know that that famous line by um, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, where Russia had invaded, Biden's administration offered to extract um, Zelensky, and then Zelensky gave that line, uh, I, I, I don't, I need, I need ammo, not a ride. Did you know he never actually said that? It's false. Pure fiction. It's a made-up tale. This one was invented by a writer. We got you. Like, I guess it's fine. It's cool because it, you know, bolstered people's image of how Ukraine was doing, and it put a lot of people on Ukraine's side, but it also kind of bummed me out. Not necessarily because, like, oh, yeah, he didn't actually say that really cool line. I can live without that. I think what was a bummer is that it just reaffirmed this thing that keeps getting so... mercilessly reaffirmed as I get older. Which is that, like, everybody chooses their reality. And the fact that something is true or untrue, or the fact that it did or did not happen, seems to have very little to do with whether or not people will, by and large, embrace it and repeat it and live their lives by it. Like, all throughout elementary and middle and high school, I was growing up with the same group of people and getting so tired of the same group of people. And every day I was like, Jesus fuck, I can't wait to get out of here and go hang out with adults. But now I'm out of there. I'm like almost 15 years exactly removed from high school and guess who the adults are? The fuck, the fucking same people. So anyways, I, I like the way Leonard Cohen talks about dying, but I'm bracing myself, again, for the likelihood that someday in the not-too-distant future, some scrupulous biographer is gonna come along and upend that narrative of Leonard Cohen, like, sitting quietly and meditating through his crushing spinal problems in his final days. The biographer's gonna be like, yeah, Leonard Cohen in his final days, it wasn't peaceful, all he did was, like, weep and shout slurs. What he said, however, he Cohen himself, is that the couple months he spent at death's door, that those were like the most clear-headed periods of his creative life. Sometimes it's just like, you're losing too much weight now, man. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. Force yourself to have a sandwich or something, you know what I mean? You know, sometimes I hear it say, ignore me. Just get on with the things you have to do. It's very compassionate at this stage. And more than any time in my life, I don't have that voice that says, you're fucking up. That's a tremendous blessing. Tremendous blessing. I'm ready to die. I hope it isn't uncomfortable. I'm definitely not looking forward to, like, my final days, but... If it's five or six months of wizened, old, creative contentment, I wouldn't say I'm all that terrified either.